Mark 10, uh, 32 through 45. And the last thing that we looked at in uh, the book of Mark was this idea of, of Jesus um, using two examples. He, he uses this example where he's there and, and parents are trying to bring uh, children to him. And uh, they most likely wanted the children brought for dedication of some sorts. And Jesus, uh, the disciples prevent them from coming. And Jesus speaks and says to them, you know, that these children don't prevent them from coming to me, for they are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, and we saw there that the children were important to Jesus and they were inheritors of the kingdom of God, not because they were, um, not because they were innocent, because we know kids aren't really like innocent. They seem like they are, but they're not troublemakers. Um, but because simply they didn't, they, they were completely needy and helpless. Now, the second portion there that we looked at was this man who uh, the other gospels tell us was the rich young ruler. It was this man who, who was very successful in business and he had come and was running to Jesus and he's asking Jesus, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, uh, you know, very plainly, you know, you, you know, what does is, what is Moses command and, and kind of points the man to the law and the man, you know, he kind of passes over that and says, well, you know, I've kept that uh, from my youth, and, and I, I feel like I've upheld that. But then Jesus comes back and charges him again and says, if you want to follow me, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And it says that the man went away disappointed. He went away grieved and very sad. And we saw that there was such a contrast there because this man who seemed to have everything, who had all the riches, who was wealthy and young, he could not find entrance into the kingdom of God. But yet, Jesus points out that in the upside-down kingdom of God, those who have nothing, such as children, they are the actual inheritors of the kingdom of God because they are in the position that they need help, that they're able to recognize their need before God and to say that, that they can't do it on their own. This, this rich young ruler, his his identity was wrapped up in his wealth. That's why we call him the rich young ruler. That's what he's known by. He's, he's rich and he's young. You know, it's not just like some man who happens to have a lot of money. He's the rich young ruler. And so this man's identity was wrapped up in his riches. And Jesus' command to him was not so much that, uh, that he couldn't have things or be rich, but that your identity cannot be built upon uh, your own protection, your own salvation accomplished through your own means, but you have to enter in the form of a child where you're completely helpless and able to ask for, uh, and needy, able to ask for help there. And so this morning, we continue on looking at the book of Mark, and he picks up in verse 32, predicting his death once again. He foretells what is going to happen to him. Now, along the way in the things that we've been looking at, not only are those who want to enter the kingdom of God, not only do they need to be like children, but Jesus also tells us that in the kingdom of God, those who want to be great must be servants. They, the, the way that you become great in the kingdom of God is by actually serving others and not making yourself first of all, but last of all. And Jesus is going to get to that this morning in two places. 
Well, actually kind of three. It's kind of the main theme of our passage again this morning, servanthood. And so he starts off, we'll, we'll kind of look at that. He starts off in verse 32. Look with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So, Jesus, now, after seemingly wandering around for the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, now has purpose. He is now headed to Jerusalem, it tells us. It actually indicates that he's on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, when it says that he was going up to Jerusalem, it was both because Jerusalem actually was higher in elevation and they were going up to Jerusalem, but also that spoke of this idea of going on a spiritual pilgrimage. And this, this calls us back to the thing that we've been looking at in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's suffering servant. Here's, uh, here's what it says how, about Jerusalem being associated with this. In Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. So that's important there. This idea of, of God's house being established in Jerusalem and all the nations are being are flowing to it. Here we even see in the book of Isaiah that the Gentiles are being incorporated into salvation, even in Isaiah 2. Uh, and many people shall come uh, and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." So Jesus is heading up with purpose now. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And notice how, what's happening here. Ever since Peter made this confession in, in Mark chapter 8 about who Jesus was, Jesus has kind of like had this singular laser beam focus on heading to Jerusalem. And he's told them two times already that he's going to Jerusalem so that he may suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and rise again on the third day. And in this text this morning, we see again for the third time he tells them that. But notice Jesus and the way that he goes about this. It tells us that Jesus was walking ahead of them. This, this lines up with Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 57 uh, 50 verse 7, not 57. Isaiah 50 verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. This is speaking of that suffering servant. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. That's talking about this suffering servant who would, who would be completely focused on his task of suffering. Now, Jesus is showing that he actually is this suffering servant. And in his, in his ability to walk way up ahead of everybody... Jesus is demonstrating his willingness to move to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying. He is the one that's leading the way towards his death. It's not like, oh, I'm, you know, it's not like he's saying, like, I'm going to die, and then, like, I'm going to kind of drag my feet about it, and you're going to have to, like, pull me along. Jesus is like, we're going here. I have a mission. I'm on my way. I'm in front. Let's go. Don't slow down the train. He is the one that is, that is making this push toward Jerusalem. It says... It, um, there, that those who followed, they were amazed and they were afraid. So the disciples here, they're lagging behind because they're both amazed and afraid. This is the same type of fear that 
Peter demonstrated when Jesus told him that he was the Messiah that would suffer and die. And then Peter decided it was a good idea to bring Jesus, you know, uh, take Jesus aside and then rebuke him and tell him that it wasn't, you know, really going to happen. And that, that fear that Peter demonstrated there was, uh, it's the same type of fear here. The, Peter's fear is this, that in heading with Jesus to Jerusalem, as followers, as disciples of Jesus, that he and the other disciples may also share in this death that, that Jesus is going to. The way that it worked in that time is that as a rabbi and teacher would go and do something, the disciples always followed in that path. Whatever the teacher did, the, the, the students, they also did as well. They were also known and were going to be called to that same thing. And so in doing this, they're fearful as they're heading towards Jerusalem, like, this is getting real. And now, like, they're, they're afraid that they're going to have to die as well. So Jesus has this singular purpose in moving toward Jerusalem. Verse 33, he says, Jesus here, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus indicates here that they're heading to Jerusalem for a purpose. The fear of the disciples, it gives Jesus an opportunity to instruct them, to tell them what's ahead. And he does. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew exactly what he was heading into. Later um, <clears throat> in the book of Luke, he actually indicates of Israel's rich history of persecution. Israel has a rich, or excuse me, Jerusalem's rich history of persecution and attacking people, uh, those who God has sent to the city. In, in Luke 13, 34, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. What a thing to be known for. It's like Jesus knew exactly what he was heading into here. He indicates you know, through the Gospel of Luke, that he knows exactly what he's heading into. The disciples know exactly, uh, as Jesus heads into this and what he's told them, that they too may face a similar fate. Now, something interesting happens in the way that Jesus communicates back to them. He says, see, we're heading up to Jerusalem. Now, the last time that we saw um, Peter remark about following Jesus is when he is kind of responding to Jesus's uh, Jesus' teaching to the rich man. He told the rich man, sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. And then a small, small little dialogue happens. The man goes away sad. And then Jesus is talking to the disciples and Peter is like, see, we've given everything away. We've left our nets and we have followed you. It's interesting what happens here right after that same, as the same text that we looked at last week. Mark indicates here that, that Jesus responds back to Peter in the same wording, the same language here. He says, see, that, that word that, that ties those two passages together, indicating, Peter, you haven't gone far enough. You may have sold your stuff, but you still need to follow me. We're still headed in this way. We're still headed in this direction toward suffering and death. Abandoning Everything that you have is not enough if you don't 
continue to follow Jesus and go with him all the way to the cross. Jesus is, is giving that, that command. He's calling the disciples to that with this, with this small word that he indicates in speaking to them. He's saying, you might have sold everything, but you haven't finished the journey yet. You haven't come with me. You haven't made it to the cross with me yet. But what Jesus does there is he does indicate what will happen to him in Jerusalem. He, he indicates that the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, spit on, flogged, and, and killed. So he, he gives us instruction, thereby predicting and validating who he said he was. He's going into this area... And he's going to suffer these things. But he doesn't stop there. He also finishes up and he says, after three days, he will rise. He gives the disciples hope again. Not only is Jesus going to be killed and suffer and be flogged, but he will also rise. Suffering and death here, they seem like the biggest thing because it's the longest list. It's like this crazy bad thing's going to happen. This bad thing's going to happen. This is going to happen. You're going to get beaten, flogged, crucified. And, and it seems like an overwhelming landslide of kind of negative things happening to somebody. But yet, Jesus indicates there in the last thing that he tells them that after three days, he will rise. Suffering and death do not have the last word with Jesus. The resurrection here is what he's speaking of. It's this event. And it's important that we remember this and we remark upon this because this is, is the hope that we have. It's in the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he has already conquered sin and death. What happens is often when, when we get in the situation, um, you know, where we're overwhelmed and when life surrounds us, when it just seems like the our problems just overwhelm and attack. It comes to a place where we forget to remember the faithfulness of Christ upon the cross. And when we do that, when we remember, when we, when we remember what Jesus has done, it puts him back in view. It, it's easy to lose sight of the finished work of Christ upon the cross. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that, that he has defeated sin and death, that he has conquered and, and has overcome the world. And this is what he remarks to us in John 16, He says, I have said these things to you that in, uh, in me you may have peace. So what he indicates, if you want to have peace, it's in him. And then he says this, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you're going to have trouble, you're going to have trial, you're going to experience the massive, you know, overwhelming nature of life. You're going to have giant problems that seem to just dwarf you. But yet, Jesus indicates that if you want to have peace in the midst of trial, of tribulation, when you're going crazy, it's found with him. He promises that in the world you're going to have tribulation, but he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. We must remember this last portion there, that after three days, he will rise. He has risen. He gives that to them as a hope. Now, three times Jesus has given the disciples predictions of his death. 
and his resurrection. And after every prediction, this happens. The disciples get together, and then they fight over, like, who's the best. For whatever reason, they are completely selfish, and they come into this idea where Jesus is like, I'm going to die for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. And then they immediately think it's a good idea to get into, you know, a huddle and argue over, like, which one of them is the best disciple. It's just, <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. They completely miss it. They completely miss the fact that someone's saying, I'm going to die for you, and they're like directly in relationship with that person. And yet, that's what happens here. Look at verse 35. Jesus tells them that he is, he's about to go and die for their sins, and after three days he will rise. And then James and John, with their brilliant plan, they approach Jesus. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So, <laughs> that's a pretty bold statement, like, of anybody. It, it seems like, in our minds, we logically jump to the next step. Where we're like, well, what are you asking? But that's not exactly, like, what the, the way that they were asking it. They weren't expecting Jesus to come back with a, well, what do you want? It, it was just to simply, like, yes or no answer. Like, they're coming and saying, we want you to do for us whatever you want. Will you do it? And your options are yes or no. But Jesus doesn't come back like that. It's, it's crazy the way that they approach him. In, instead of putting, um, you know, instead of stating their question, they kind of try to trick Jesus almost. They, they begin with this kind of subtle attempt at manipulating him. And what they're, in fact, asking him to do is kind of just sign a blank check of sorts. Like, Jesus, we want you to do anything that we ask of you. Here it is. Sign it and say that you will do it. And, and they just leave it out there. And Jesus responds back in great wisdom. He doesn't just say, like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. Verse 36, he responds. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus wants to know what's going on, guys? What do, you, what do you guys have in mind here? What do, you want, what do you want me to do for you? Now, it sounds a little bit funny, but this is kind of the way that we often approach Jesus. Like pretty much the way that the world and even Christians, we kind of come to Jesus like, you know, trying to approach Jesus and, uh, all right, look, I'll do what you want, but here's what you got to do for me. Or, you know, having this attitude of like, all right, Jesus, if you do this and this and this and this and this, then like I'll think about, you know, being on your team. You can't approach Jesus with that type of attitude. They're demanding that he would do whatever they desire. But what Jesus does is he responds back and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And what, what he's doing there is he's calling the disciples to reveal their true motives. See, it's, it's not bad to ask Jesus to do something for you or to help you, but it is the motive of your heart that Jesus is getting to. He's asking them by saying, what do you want me to do for you? He's asking the disciples to reveal whether they are seeking their own glory or God's glory. It's like, you want me to sign a blank check? Well, like, are you, are you trying to use this for your own purposes? 
because you want fame and glory or because you desire, you know, for me to have glory. Now, they say back to Jesus, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. So, it's kind of like an underhanded response again. They're, they kind of like say it straightforward, like, Lord, in your glory, and your kingdom, when you are seated on your heavenly throne, high above everybody else, can we be on the left and the right? You know, they, they want something kind of for their own glory, but they kind of try to disguise it by saying like, oh, you are going to be the most glorious in the middle. Now, the way that they approach it is, you know, is an issue. They, no doubt, they still don't understand where they're headed. They're headed to Jerusalem. And in their minds, the messianic idea was that a conquering nationalistic king would come in and overthrow Rome. So as they're heading to Jerusalem, the disciples are still on their kind of crazy minds thinking, we are going here and we are going to overthrow Rome and Jesus is going to sit like in, uh, you know, in on a throne here and we're going to be glorified before everybody in the city. We are going to be part of this earthly kingdom. Now, in, uh, in the Jewish custom, the place of honor was at the center, and then, you know, the right and the left hand there. And so by kind of approaching Jesus in this way, they're kind of trying to, to honor Jesus by honoring themselves is really kind of what's happening here. It, it's, it's a tricky way, and we kind of have to guard against this too in, in our lives, the way that we, um, we deal with these things. Oftentimes, it's easy for our motives to get mixed up in doing things for God when, in fact, they actually just make us look good, or they actually make us, you know, appear righteous before other people, make other people think that we're so faithful or we've worked so hard. We have to guard against worship and discipleship being blended in with our own self-interest, with our own selfish motives. And Jesus responds back to them, after they want to sit on his left and right, he says, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In responding to John and James here, he indicates that suffering and death are ordained and, will, and willed by God. He says, to them, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. You guys want to have this, this, you know, you guys want to have the same cup that I have? You want to be in the same glory that I have? You don't even know what you're asking. He's, he's saying there, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I drink? What he's saying there by saying that, by making it an exclusive statement, like, do you guys think you're able to do that? He's actually saying that God is the only one that has ordained this moment for me. I am the only one that can drink of that cup. I am the only one can, that can be baptized with that baptism. It's divinely ordained by God and is not for any other. In the Old Testament, the, the idea of a cup, um, it was this idea of suffering, really. It, and it's, it's often associated with punishment and disgrace. 
So they're not coming in and, and drinking of this great celebratory cup, but rather Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink this cup of punishment and disgrace. I'm going to drink this cup of bitter suffering. And the disciples come back and they say, we are able. It's like they, they don't understand. And Jesus responds back to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, let me break it down for you because it sounds like there was just like Jesus just said, like, you can't do that. And they said, we can. And then Jesus is like, you will be. So let me break it down for you quickly. When Jesus is saying that initially, he is challenging them to the fact that this suffering that he's about to experience is divinely ordained for him. He is speaking of the event upon the cross, of his punishment for our sins. And then when he's speaking to the disciples there of that and asking them, they should not have been able to do that, but yet they respond back that they are able because they don't understand what in the world he's talking about. They don't get the fact that he is speaking of his atonement for everybody. They just think, like, we want to be, we want to roll with you. And we want to, like, be a part of your party. And we just want to be a part of you. But when Jesus responds back to them again, in verse 39 here, and he tells them that, um, you know, as they respond, you know, with their willingness to drink of that cup, Jesus responds back again and tells them that they will. And what he's doing is he's prophesying that they will indeed take that cup and that baptism. For Jesus, the cup and the baptism represents that atoning work upon the cross. But for the disciples, the cup that he drinks of and the baptism represents suffering and sacrifice. It's persecution that awaits them as they follow Jesus. So when Jesus tells them, you will indeed drink of that cup and of that baptism, he is not speaking of this, they are going to be the ones to die for the sins of the world also, but a servant cannot be greater than his master. And so if Jesus will be killed and persecuted and crucified, so will his followers, so will his disciples. They will be persecuted. They will experience suffering and pain. And this is what he's been trying to teach them the whole time, but they still don't get it and they think they're headed to a party. He continues on to, to prophesy that, you guys think you can handle it? All right, this is what's going to happen to you. They don't really know what is going to happen to them. Now, we know in the book of Acts that this did happen, that they did experience persecution and suffering and, you know, sacrifice. Uh, Acts 12 tells us that James was killed by the sword at the hand of Herod. So he was killed there. He was martyred. And then uh, the apostle John, the other one who's asking here for this great glory, he was not martyred, actually. He lived, um, <clears throat> you know, he lived on and, but he had a lot of attempts on his life. And the one that church history tells us about, you know, probably most prominently, is that he was boiled in a vat of oil. So that doesn't really sound fun. That kind of falls under the line of persecution. So they attempted to kill him by boiling him in oil, which I don't know how the Lord allowed him to survive that. Maybe that was just, I, I don't even know what's going on. I mean, obviously he had to write like the book of Revelation, some, had some other things to do. But nevertheless, John and James both did experience that cup and that baptism. They didn't just 
let Jesus take that suffering and pain and by himself. And then they were like, oh, we're going to go off and just live our own life. They were also followed in his footsteps and experienced that same uh, sacrifice. They experienced that same persecution. Now, Jesus indicates in verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. He indicates that it's not his decision about who gets to sit at his right hand or left. He doesn't deny the fact that that's like a position available. He just says, it's not, it's not my decision. I'm not the one that gets to decide, just like he doesn't know the time uh, you know, of his return. It's only for the Father to know. Um, but he says, but it is for those whom he has prepared. So Jesus doesn't know when it's, this is gonna ha- uh, who's going to sit at his right or left, but he does indicate that there's a simple way of figuring out who's going to occupy those spots. But the disciples, they don't get it. They're trying to use kind of Jesus as a means to an end. It's like, we will follow Jesus because we want to get to this end where we can sit on your right or your left. And that's kind of what they've been up to this whole time. That's why after every uh, time Jesus talks about his death, they get together in this little huddle and argue about who's the best, who's going to get to be like, you know, the greatest disciple. It's this kind of still, they have this misunderstanding of following Jesus. The disciples should not be following Jesus, nor should we be following Jesus because of what Jesus can get us, what Jesus can give us, uh, what, we, what we hope to get from him. We can't be following him from the motive of our hearts, just like the disciples were in this instance where they're like, we want you to do, some, uh, do whatever we ask of you. That cannot be the way that we follow Jesus. We have to follow Jesus for, the, for Jesus. He is not the means to an end to get what we want, but rather he is the end. We follow Jesus to get Jesus. We follow Jesus to be with Jesus. We, we are his disciples because we want to be uh, with him. Now, the right way of following Jesus is determined simply by the fact that like, that's where Jesus is going. So if Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem for suffering and persecution, that's the right way to go because that's the way that Jesus is going. Whatever the way Jesus is going, that's the way that they need to follow. They can't follow in their nationalistic mindset of this conquering militaristic Messiah where they think they're going to war and going to have a sweet parade and live out their like slow-motion war attack that they've been planning since they were kids. This cannot be the motive of their heart. Jesus says, you have to follow me for me. You cannot make your own idol and try to get that through me. He won't allow it. Now, the 10 overhear it. So James and John, they kind of get ratted out. In verse 41, look with me. They began, the 10 heard it. They began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them over to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So this is interesting what happens here. The ten, the other ten disciples, they get upset that James and John ask this question. And, and Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't like do what we would do, like, oh, keep those guys away until they cool down. He's like, you know, you all get over here. We're just going to get you guys all mad. You're all going to, you know, you guys are all upset. We're going to lump you into one pile. He calls them over to revisit this idea of servanthood, to revisit what he has just been teaching them. The, the last thing that we saw um, 
up in our, in our first portion of the text here, he is telling them he's going to Jerusalem. He's, he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He, he's been telling them, I'm going to do this for you. And they're arguing, and now the other disciples are all upset, and he's going to revisit this idea of servanthood with them. Here's what happens. He's been teaching them repeatedly that the first should be last. But they have failed to understand that. And so when he calls them over, the way that he deals with the disciples, not only does he call the other disciples over to address James and John's ambition here to sit on his right and left, but he also, you know, addresses all of his disciples, you know, it's like the reason that they were probably upset is because they didn't get to ask the question first, and they actually were the ones that wanted to like ask that, like, we want you to do whatever we want. And, you know, maybe they were all working up the guts to ask the question amongst themselves. And finally, like James and John were like, we're going together because we're brothers, and we're going to tag team this. There's only two spots. We're going to cut everybody else out. And so Jesus calls them all over to deal with probably the secret ambition of all of their hearts. He, he, he gets right to the issue. Jesus responds to the disciples' ambition for greatness, not only James and John, but the others. Uh, he responds to them by contrasting the way that being great, receiving glory, is measured in the, in the world with the way that it's measured in the kingdom of God. Look what he says. He says, you know that those uh, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So the world, he says, practices leadership with this model of just completely dominating them, with you know having intense authority, and it's using power and it uses their position to step on other people. This is the the word that it says there when it says exercises authority. It's actually a translation from the Greek that means to gain mastery or power over others to subdue, to function as a tyrant, dictator, or oppressor. So exercising authority over somebody in, in this text here, as Jesus indicates, it's not really like to do it in the nicest way. It's to make people do what you want, to take advantage of them. But now, in verse 43, Jesus says this. He says, but it shall not be so among you. He contrasts it. This is how the world does it, but among you it shall not be so. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus rejects the model of the world. He says, that's not the way that it is in the kingdom of God. That, that's not how it is with you guys. You should not be operating this way. The idea of servanthood keeps getting presented by Jesus again and again and again and again. But now he focuses, he goes even further than before, and he, he shows up with using this vocabulary of slavery, which he hadn't before in, uh, in previous mentions of it. He calls his followers to take upon themselves this condition of slavery. It, it, in that culture, it was like the worst shame. It was rock bottom. And yet, Jesus says, the way of the slave is the path to glory. If you want to be great, be 
the lowest. Put yourself at rock bottom. Jesus speaks of greatness, not in terms of power and and prestige, but rather in terms of service. If you want to be great, don't seek power and, and prestige, but seek service. Serve one another. What he's essentially saying is greatness belongs to those who are not great. Again, it's that, that kind of upside-down kingdom of God. It's that, that paradox that he keeps presenting. Greatness, those who are not great are actually the greatest, is what Jesus is indicating here. He says, if you want to be great, be a servant. But if you want to be first, be a slave of all. In that mindset, in that world, being a slave was like the worst. Like you did not want to be a slave. There was few things worse than being a slave. Um, It wasn't the kind of same type of slavery that we kind of had in America during the Civil War. It was a different, a different type of slavery where you were paying off, um, you know, working out of of your debt. Really, it would be um, you were trying to work yourself out of of debt uh, by serving someone else for a certain number of years. Basically, it meant you were a really poor steward and. you know, you definitely held the lowest social status in society. But that being, uh, you know, what it was, a degrading status within society, it's mentioned here in our passage, and even when we look at Philippians chapter 2, it's mentioned that Jesus was the the one who originally came in that form. If you look at Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, it says of Jesus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave being born in the likeness of men. What he's saying is Jesus, who, who deserved all glory, emptied himself of that and took on the lowest form, the lowest position in society, of, in the form of a bond slave, and came as a man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as he calls us to be servants here, uh, you know, if we, to be servants, um, he also goes further and says, if you want to be first, be a slave of all. Serve others in that way. This is not, um, it's not a conditional sort of statement. I guess, I guess it is a conditional statement. What I mean is, um, this isn't an optional statement. How about that? There, that's what I meant. Jesus isn't saying, like, if you feel like it, then serve others and be a servant of all and be a slave of all. What, uh, what in effect he's saying is, if you do not take on this attitude of service to others, if you do not make yourself the servant of all and the slave of all, you, if you don't hold those ideals in the, in the same way that I have held them and I have served them, you actually stand outside of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is marked by service. It's a marked by, by this idea of, um, you know, of giving and service and not of power. That, you know, how he contrasts that with the other rulers in uh, verse 42. But rather, this kingdom is built upon serving. Verse 45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
When Jesus teaches us about service and and self-sacrifice, it's not a principle to him. He's not just saying, like, this is a good way to live your life. He is actually saying that this is the pattern of my life, and therefore those who follow me must have the same pattern. If if, If you want to follow Christ, you have to take on this same position as a servant. He was the ultimate servant. He was the ultimate uh, sacrifice here. He says, for even the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The reason why service and and being a servant is, is, you know, the way to glory in the kingdom of God is is because the sole purpose of a servant is to give. You're giving your time, your effort, your resources to someone else. And that is the nature of God. The reason why that is so highly exalted in the kingdom of God, because it reflects God's nature. He gives his son. He gives the Holy Spirit to us. He gives us gifts, you know, to enable us to serve him. This is why it's held so highly within the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' statement here that he makes, that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, it kind of echoes back, and he means it to echo back to Isaiah 53, remarking upon Isaiah's servant, uh, suffering servant, the one who would come for the purpose of redeeming. Look at Isaiah 53, starting in verse 10 and 11, and we'll wrap up here. Jesus said he's going to come, and he doesn't want to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What he's speaking of there is that he's going to make an exchange, this ransom. It means, uh, you know, in the language of the day, it would be kind of like bail paid for prisoners of war or slaves, you know, being released from jail. It means to cover over, to atone for. And so here, in his statement, he's indicating that he will give up his life so that those who are in prison can be released. Those who are in bondage can be made free. Look at verse uh, Isaiah 53, 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the, <clears throat> the, will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is exactly what Jesus is saying he's going to do. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, speaking of Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is what Jesus is saying he is going to do. He is going to give his life as a ransom for many. He freely offers it. You know, we saw as he is willingly headed to Jerusalem. He's like in full sprint. 
as they head up to Jerusalem. He's the one leading the pack. He's like, let's go do this. I'm on my way. That is the type of love, the type of servant nature that Jesus has that he demonstrates for us. He heads there willingly, purposefully, and lovingly for our sake. Jesus rules because he is a king, but he doesn't rule through oppression and and this dictatorship like the world, but he rules through servanthood. He, the king, gives his life as a ransom for many. John 10 tells us, that Jesus is the good shepherd. It tells us that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Furthermore, in Romans 8, verse 2 through 4, it tells us that the, the law of the Spirit uh, has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has taken Christ, and he has, he has made us free through the work of Jesus upon the cross. He, he, he sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemned sin in the flesh on, at the cross. As Jesus bore our iniquities, and we were given his righteousness. We were accounted righteous because of his work. So when Jesus heads to the cross, when he heads in obedience to Jerusalem for the purpose of his death and resurrection, to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, he is doing it out of obedience to God. He is doing it full of love, with the idea that he will bear our punishment. He is doing it not out of his own selfishness, but selflessly. He is our, ser- our model for service. He is the one that we look to when we deal with loving and serving not only people within the church, but outside of the church as well. So God wants us to discover Jesus' model of servant ministry. He wants us to see that, and, and often I'm reminded of that whenever I kind of am tempted to grumble. I'm often reminded through the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus probably wasn't going to grumble. Jesus didn't grumble about going to the cross, and so I could probably do something, you know, that I don't like for 20 minutes, you know, and get over myself, which is, you know, those are like the biggest tragedies like in our lives sometimes. We're like, I don't want to do that. But as Jesus suffered, we want to serve with that same ability that he served with. Jesus met the needs both physically and spiritually of people that he ministered to. And we, as the body of Christ, we are his representatives here in the world. We are made available for his use for his glory. And so as we go out, our words, our actions with one another and the world, they leave a lasting impression and they should reflect the servant nature of Christ. They should reflect this attitude. It's, it's the desire of God that we have that same attitude, that we come with the heart not to be served, but to serve. 
not wanting to be in a place where people wait on us, but rather we willingly demonstrate love to others. And when we do that, God is most glorified. God is most, you know, exalted as they see the good works that we have done, not because of our goodness, but because we're responding and serving other people because of, out of the overflow of Jesus's goodness to us, out of the overflow of his servant nature to us, we are able to serve others. And so let's pray that he enables us and helps us to do that. Lord, we're thankful again for your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to have that same servant nature that you had. Lord, we know that as it was an attribute, as it was the mark of your ministry, servanthood, Lord, it's something that you desire for us to have as well. And we know that if we ask according to your will, we know that you will, uh, you will give it to us. And so, Lord, we ask not for, um, for riches, Lord, we ask not for um, our own selfish desires, Lord, but we ask for the ability to serve as you serve, to love as you loved. We're thankful that your Holy Spirit will apply that to us, that your word will go into our hearts and allow it to sink down deep, Lord. We pray that we would bear fruit as a result of understanding and seeing Jesus' faithfulness and service. We're thankful for your goodness to us. We love you. Amen.